Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well. I'm actually very excited right now. This is somewhat unprecedented for these opening segments, but I have a special guest that I'm here to interview. As you may have heard, Jonathan Occasion has been making a big splash on the competitive Beard Made Out of Bees circuit. Now, Jonathan, how do you feel about your seemingly effortless rise, despite having no real formal training, in this highly competitive field of having a beard made out of bees? Well, Hub... I'm exceedingly pleased to be succeeding with ease at being covered with bees. Thank you, Jonathan. You heard it here first, folks. He's exceedingly pleased to be succeeding with ease at being covered with bees. Dumbest opening ever? Ah, there's some stiff competition. In any event, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Lucas Brown. Rick Martell was a model with arrogance. Even slant rhymes count for a synopsis. Indeed they do, Lucas. New Teen Titans, number 35, October 1983. Siege. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by Keith Pollard, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Len Wein. Teen Titan Roll Call, Cyborg, Raven, Beast Boy, that's all! Previously in the New Teen Titans. A few months ago, Cyborg went to visit his good buddy and definitely not girlfriend, Sarah Sims. Vic was startled when the door was answered not by his purportedly platonic pretty pal, but by a young man wearing a basketball jersey over a three-quarter sleeve turtleneck sweater who had tucked both shirts into his slacks. The sartorially stupefying stranger introduced himself as Mark Wright and told Cyborg that he was Sarah's fiancé and that the two had been engaged for over a year. Suffice it to say, Cyborg was stunned. The tempestuous titanium teen excused himself, then ripped off his clothes and jumped back to the Titan's T-shaped skyscraper to brood for several months. Since meeting the matrimonially-minded Mark, the mechanical Marvel has refused to talk to Sarah. What a shitty friend! But unbeknownst to our Molly Bendham-muscled mechanical moper, Mark and Sarah had broken up over a year ago. The delusional double-shirt-tucking douchebag had been stalking Miss Sims and growing increasingly unhinged as he did so. In other Titans news, Raven has been frightened to flex her formidable mystical nonsense powers. The Azerathian empath was justifiably concerned that if she were to do an empathy at somebody, then her extra-dimensional demonic bad dad Trigon would escape from the tummy of her bird-shaped soul self and destroy the universe. Gadzooks! Will Cyborg finally forgive his friend for whom he has never expressed a romantic interest for having a fiancé? As his dangerous delusions intensify, will Mark try to tuck more shirts into his slacks? And when Beast Boy turns into a chimpanzee, which 1970s TV star will he most resemble? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yeah, just as soon as he found out that she didn't actually have a fiancé. What a shitty friend. Thankfully, no, he just steals a cop's gun and takes a bunch of hostages and shoots a couple of people, which I guess is arguably just as bad. And Ed Asner. Cyborg and Beast Boy are working their way through the Titan Tower's chore wheel. At Gar's insistence, the dutiful duo of do-gooders are dusting under the building's supercomputer. Vic, who is lifting the enormous device while his emerald amigo transforms himself into an elephant and sweeps under it, points out impatiently that the computer weighs over nine tons. Nine tons? Why, a 1983 computer that weighed that much must have had the raw processing power to run two simultaneous games of Tetris, and do some light word processing. With resources like that at their disposal, no wonder the Titans are such effective crime fighters. Eventually, the Mechanical Marvel gets tired of hoisting the other Mechanical Marvel over his head and drops it noisily to the floor, nearly crushing his transforming teammate in the process. Gar gets good-naturedly outraged by Vic's potentially fatal prank, 
and turns himself into a giant python. The pair of playfully antagonistic pals start roughhousing around, but their horseplay soon takes an unfortunate turn. Raven pops in to say hello just as Vic is flinging his pubescent pugilism partner across the room. Startled to find herself on the receiving end of an unexpectedly airborne serpentine teen, the Azerathian avian empath goes stumbling over a railing and tumbles off the top story of the Titan's stairwell. Oops, looks like the Titan's tower isn't exactly OSHA compliant. Also, why are they putting a 9-ton supercomputer on the top floor? That's going to be a pain in the ass if they have to move. I hope the Titan Tower isn't a rental. Cyborg leaps over the edge of the stairwell and manages to catch the clumsy conjurer midair before using his hydraulics to make a safe landing. Hooray! Remorseful, the recently roughhousing rescuer apologizes for his role in his teammate's tumble and asks why she didn't just teleport herself to safety. A fair question. After recomposing herself, Raven replies, Remember how if I use my powers, my nigh-omnipotent evil demon father might crawl out of my soul and cookie monster up the galaxy? Yeah, that. Now I'm going to my room to feel sad about how I can't feel any feelings. After the empath leaves the room, Vic demonstrates some empathy of his own, opining, Man, sucks to be her. To which Beast Boy rejoins, Sucks to be you, since you won't talk to your pal Sarah. Why don't you try to smooch her and stuff? Cyborg angrily responds that he hasn't talked to Sarah in several months and has no intention of doing so because he is all pissy that she didn't tell him that she's engaged. Huh. I mean, that's super shitty of Vic, but it also makes me wonder if Donna ever toyed with the idea of not telling Beast Boy that she was engaged to Terry just to see if she could get some of that sweet, sweet silent treatment from the harassment-prone anamorph. Might be worth a shot. And speaking of engagements, just what activity is the aforementioned Miss Sims currently engaged in? Turns out, she is a few blocks away, doing her best to physically fend off the unwanted amorous attention of her not-actually-fiancé-after-all, Mark Wright. Man, fuck you, Mark. Cornered in an alley, a frightened Sarah Sims tries to remind Mark that they were never engaged, that they had merely been co-workers, who had briefly casually dated over a year ago, but then she had broken things off. Mark had moved to Washington and become involved with a woman named Maddie, to whom Sarah heard he was engaged. At the mere mention of Maddie, Mark breaks out into a flop sweat and starts drooling from the corners of his mouth and crying. It's not a great look. Although, it's arguably a better look than wearing a basketball jersey over a turtleneck sweater and then tucking both shirts into your slacks. A police officer wanders by and notices that Mark's face is leaking an awful lot of fluids. He asks if everything is alright. Mark answers defensively, Yeah, everything's great. This is absolutely my girlfriend, and we love each other, and this is a perfectly normal amount of liquid for my face to be hemorrhaging. Now go away! For some reason, the cop is unconvinced. He asks Sarah if something's wrong. She replies, Um, yeah, everything's good. I ant k octe in front of the unitic lay, but I'd sure appreciate it if you could walk me home, officer. The patrolman is about to comply with Sarah's request. Then Mark steals his gun and takes Sarah hostage. Shitty. The entitled asshole drags Sarah to a nearby sporting goods store at gunpoint. Once inside, a balding clerk gets the notion that the wild-eyed young asshole holding a gun to the young woman's head might be up to something. The eagle-eyed employee reaches under the register to get the store gun, and Mark shoots him in the gut. So much for the good guy with a the gun theory. As the police force gathers outside the store, Mark starts helping himself to the piles of rifles and ammunition the store has on display figures. I guess the idea that he might help himself to the tennis rackets and soccer balls was just wishful thinking on my part. One of the cops outside gets on a bullhorn and suggests that Mark surrender before anyone else gets hurt. As you can imagine, that suggestion doesn't exactly go over great with Mark. The deranged dipshit takes careful aim with his newly acquired firearm and shoots one of the policemen outside in the part of his shoulder that is not covered by a bulletproof vest. Mark reveals that before he got involved with the charity organization he met Sarah at, he used to be a marksman in the army. Hmm. 
entitled asshole who was a marksman in the army and is obsessed with a blonde lady and insists that despite her objections, they are in love and have a marital relationship that she denies the validity of. This guy is starting to sound awfully familiar. Well, Jack Norris, I mean Mark, is shooting it out with the cops, Sarah sneaks away and places a call to the Titan Tower. As always, Beast Boy answers the phone. A tearful Sarah explains the situation. Within a minute of the call being placed, an enraged cyborg has leapt from the tower and joined the cops outside the sporting goods store. Dang, he may have his faults as a superhero, but Beast Boy is a surprisingly efficient secretary. Seems like he may have missed his calling. Having realized that Sarah Sims may be single after all, Vic rushes into the store to rescue her. Once again, Jack, I mean Mark, takes careful aim and shoots Vic in his non-metal shoulder. Dang. Dude really likes shooting people in the shoulder. I bet Cyborg wishes that extra-dimensional fart monster had eaten a little bit more of his body so that his dad could have replaced it with experimental bulletproof space metal. Or, you know, maybe not. Inside the store, Sarah tries to talk Mark down. She once again brings up the woman he had been dating in Washington. At the mention of the name Maddie, Mark once again freaks out and goes back to insisting that Sarah's love is a commodity to which he is entitled and insists on claiming. Back outside, Cyborg is still reeling from his recent gunshot wound. He seems kind of embarrassed to have not worked up a full immunity to bullets. Yeah, you and me both, buddy. Evil news reporter Bethany Snow, who is secretly an agent of Septicentennial cult leader Brother Blood, shows up and wants an interview, but Vic sasses her real good. Beast Boy and Raven show up. Despite having just said a few pages ago that her using her powers could result in, you know, the destruction of the universe and shit, Raven uses her powers to heal Vic's shoulder. Which is sweet of her and all, but, I mean, she does realize that Vic and his shoulder live in the universe, right? I mean... If Trigon does pop out of her soul tummy and wreck the joint, then the shoulder healing thing is kind of a moot point. Anyway, Trigon stays put and Cyborg feels much better, so hooray, I guess. Beast Boy decides to try his hand at Sarah rescuing. The green teen turns himself into a spider and sneaks into the store. Once inside, he hears Mark telling Sarah that his ex-girlfriend Maddie that she keeps bringing up is dead. Awkward. Mark had convinced her to go to a party she didn't want to. They had fun there, and then she was dead. After her death, Mark somehow decided that Sarah was his last chance to be loved, so he came back to New York and started pointing guns at her. Yeah. Beast Boy decides that he has heard enough. Using his spider form, he shoots webbing at Mark's gun and tries to yank it out of his grasp. Hooray! The thing is, Gar is a regular-sized fucking spider, so his ploy has no real effect other than alerting the gun-toting maniac to his presence. Damn it, Gar! Changing tactics, the jade jackass turns into a chimpanzee that looks an awful lot like Ed Asner and attempts a more direct approach, dropping from the ceiling and tackling the rifle-wielding reprobate. A surprisingly alert Mark hits the Lou Grant-looking primate in the face with the butt of his gun and threatens to shoot a hostage unless the shape-shifting teen leaves immediately. Reluctantly, Gar complies. When he reports what has just happened to his teammates outside, Raven is like, Hey, remember all that stuff I said before about how I shouldn't use my powers because apocalypse and so forth? Well, never mind all that. I'm going to use my powers a bunch now. And with that, the apparently arbitrarily empathy-abstinent avian enthusiast teleports into the building. Once inside, she starts healing up the dude that Mark shot and tells Mark that she can ease his feelings of desperation if he will just let her. She will just need to show him the truth. Um, sure, that'll probably work. If there's one thing I've noticed, it's that insecure, heavily armed white dudes usually respond pretty rationally when women explain things to them. Meanwhile, over the objections of the police, Cyborg has jumped onto the roof of the store and started using a laser finger to cut a hole in the roof. As he finger blasts, there was probably a better way to phrase that, the relatively roboticized repeated rescue attempter ruminates that as soon as he saves Sarah from the deranged stalker who showed up after not talking to her for a long time and declared his undying love for her, he is going to talk to her for the first time in months and declare his undying love for her. Damn it, cyborg! 
As he slowly and silently slices through the roof, Cyborg hears Sarah say that she and Mark had never really seriously dated, and thinks to himself, Thank God! Wow. Way to prioritize. You do realize that a madman still has a gun pointed at her, right? This reminds me of a few years ago. I found out some bad news about my father and I called a friend. When I told him that I called him because my dad had cancer and I needed to talk, his response was, Oh, thank God, I thought you were mad at me. Yeah, it's kind of like that. My dad's fine, by the way. Directly below our somewhat self-centered superhero, Sarah and Raven are trying to get Mark to open up about what happened with the mysterious Maddie. Mark repeats that she was dead because he took her to a party, but that he doesn't want to talk or think about her. He goes on to whine about the fact that his parents gave him up for adoption because they didn't love him. He insists that Sarah has to love him now because he wants to be loved, and nobody else does. Asshole. When Sarah says that if he'll let all of the hostages go, she'll say that she loves him, the self-pitying shithead freaks out again and calls her a liar, pointing his gun at her face. Fortunately, by that time, Cyborg had finished finger-blasting a hole in the roof. He fires a laser that melts the armed, affection-demanding asshole's rifle. Hooray! Mark pulls out the cop's pistol he had stolen earlier and points it shakily at his mechanically-enhanced assailant. He says that he's sure that Vic is the reason that Sarah is rejecting him, just like Maddie rejected him at that party. Wait, what? Yeah, it turns out that when he said that she was dead, Mark meant that she was dead to him because she left him for another guy. That's it? You got dumped so you stalked your old co-worker and then went on a shooting spree? Fuck you, man. I don't say this lightly, but I prefer Jack Norris to this asshole. After making his confession, Mark drops the gun and collapses into the fetal position, crying. The comic book ends there, but I'm just going to assume that after that last panel, there was a page that got cut out where Sarah and the other hostages just stand around taking turn kicking the dude in the balls for like 45 minutes. Hooray! And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am well. How are you? I am doing pretty well myself. Good. So, what'd you think of this issue? Let's see. I feel like it was a little light on the other Teen Titans, but we did get to see some nice character development with Borgie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Beast Boy, he did fine. He did fine. Raven did a good Raven job. Raven did a good job, and that was all we get for Titans. I kind of like having it be a little bit pared down in that way. You get a little bit more of the development of the relationship between the three Titans that are featured. And it's also just kind of a little self-contained story. Like, it's kind of a fill-in issue in terms of it doesn't really feel like a Teen Titans book without George Perez on it. Although I will say, Keith Pollard did an amazing job. I flipped back to the credits a few times because it looked so much like Perez's artwork, except for there's one panel that we'll talk about later. Where, Yeah, there, there I feel like there's always a tell in that regard. But uh, yeah, I didn't notice until it was page 14 where there's actually a little reference that has an inside joke that says Marv and Keith. And I was like, Keith? Is Keith Giffen the editor of this issue? What? And then I flipped back and was like, oh, okay. And knowing that it wasn't George Perez, you could kind of see places with it. But having Romeo Tangal on the inks, it really seems way more seamless. Mm. I think, honestly, even than issues that are drawn by Perez and inked by someone other than Romeo Tangal, it really does show how much he brings to the to the party. A lot of power in the pen. Mm-hmm. The ink pen. Good one, Corey. <laughs> As opposed to the... The, the, the sword pen. Yeah, it's that which one. The ink pen is mightier than the sword pen. Sword pen will just Both fuck, of those... fuck up a comic yeah. so fast. Yeah, but also regular sword. Because <laughs> like if the pen's mightier than the sword, mm-hmm. and then the ink pen is mightier than the sword pen, mm-hmm. that sword doesn't just stand a chance, man. No, not at all. It's chanceless. Yeah. Chanceless weapon. Yeah, take that, you shitty weapon. I'm sorry, swords are great. I don't know why I'm talking shit about swords. They are pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Then it's agreed. All right. You want to talk about a comic book? So you spoke of an inside joke. I was going to ask you if you knew what that was about. The thing about it working better in the comics? 
Is it a Spider-Man joke? It's a Spider-Man reference in a DC comic, so a little bit subversive feeling. Okay. Also, Marf Wolfman and Keith Pollard did work together on The Amazing Spider-Man for a while. So I think it's just kind of a double reference going on there. But yeah, there's a scene in which Beast Boy has turned himself into a spider and tries to web the gun out of Mark's hand. But he's a regular-sized spider, so it just doesn't do anything. It's a really, even for Beast Boy, that is a dumb plan. But that was the inside joke that I was talking about. He's turned into a spider. He says, the amazing Spider-Gar. And he webs up the gun. And then Mark just looks up and is like, what? And then he turns into a monkey and jumps on him and says, somehow that worked better in the comic books. And then it says, inside joke from Marvin Keith. I think both inside joke in terms of it being a self-referential comic book thing that is a DC comic referring to a Marvel comic, and also that uh, Keith and Marv worked on the Spider-Man book for a while. Very good. Thank you. You said you liked the character development of Cyborg in this issue. Mm-hmm. I did not. What did you dislike about it? Um, I felt like he was being kind of a narcissist in this issue, honestly. I felt like he was kind of taking the narrative of what was happening with Sarah and turning it into something that was about him. And it felt shitty to me. That's interesting. I didn't read it that way. I read it as his concern for her made him realize that he had been a real butthead about the whole thing and he just needed to, once the situation is solved and she's safe, that he's not going to be a butthead anymore. I, I wish I could have read it that way. I wasn't able to. There were a couple of things about it that made it seem like it wasn't about her well-being at that point. It was about him being frustrated and him needed to take action about these, these things. And it was more important that he be the one to rescue her than that she be rescued and that she be okay. And I think at one point the cops are trying to restrain him and he's like, I just need to smash something. And... I can understand him being frustrated, but it, it's that felt wrong to me. And there was one particular scene in which he's cutting a hole in the ceiling with his laser gun, and he's listening in on the scene that is happening below, and Sarah is being held at gunpoint. It starts off, he leaps onto the ceiling, and the cops are like, where are you going? And he's like, to do something. I can't stand around here any longer. Uh, and they're like, you don't have the authority. And it's like, I just gave myself the authority. Jumps onto the thing thinks about how he's been acting like a jerk, but also thinks about, as soon as this is over, I'm going to tell her how I really feel. And, dude, maybe give her a little bit of space. Maybe try to see that she is being stalked by somebody who is obsessed with her. Maybe as soon as she is rescued from that situation, saying, hey, I love you, isn't what she's going to need right then. But when he is crouched on the roof and listening in on the situation inside, First he hears her voice and he says, oh, okay, thank God she's okay. But then he hears them talking later and she's saying, Mark, I've always liked you. I've always cared. And for a while there, we both thought we more than cared. But Mark, it was only our proximity at work that made us think so. If I loved you, Mark, it was as a friend, not as a lover. And when he hears that, Cyborg thinks, thank God. That seems shitty. I feel like in a lot of ways this issue is bending over backwards in a way that it doesn't need to, to make you see that it is not Sarah's fault that this is happening. Even if they had been dating, even if they had been engaged, even if she had been leading him on, even if she broke up with him yesterday, none of that should make any difference. And the story is really going out of its way to just be like, no, they were just friends who dated really briefly and they never had sex. So she's really blameless in this. It just felt kind of gross. Mm. Well, good points. I still don't think he was being that much of a, a jerk. A really okay. good point about the, like, yeah, maybe give her a few minutes after you take her out of the super traumatic situation with the creepy stalker. Guy. Yeah, it was the combination, really, of that and the, specifically him saying, thank God, she's being held at gunpoint right then, and she says that she didn't date this dude. Like... Well, he's a jerk, though. Yeah, I get that he's a jerk. <laughs> Let's talk about that jerk. Whole lot of Mark in this issue. Whole lot of Mark in this issue. Did Mark remind you of anybody? A uh, young Harrison Ford? <laughs> in appearance, perhaps. Oh, in appearance only. 
I could not get Jack Norris out of my head this whole fucking issue. Yeah, he's a real shit in the same way that Mr. Norris is a shit. Like, in a way that honestly made me wonder if Mark was inspired by Jack Norris. Especially when you think that Marv Wolfman was the editor on those issues. You've got a guy who had a former relationship with a pretty blonde lady, who is an entitled piece of shit, Mm -hmm. who is a former army sniper. Mm -hmm. Like... There are a ton of parallels between these characters, and anytime Mark talked, I was just like, is this how Wolfman as an editor felt about Jack Norris at the time? I realize it's probably not. It's probably they're unrelated, but it really felt remarkably similar to me. Just like obsessive ex-boyfriend who maybe never had a real relationship with a person, at least not in the way that he thinks that he did, who will not let things go. Who, again, just like the both our former army marksmen. I, I just kept thinking Jack Norris. I think the crucial difference is Jack Norris is a shit, but ostensibly not a batshit crazy shit. And Mark is off his fucking rocker. Yeah, I'm not sure to what extent that was the original intent of the story. It seemed like Mark being unstable in the way that he is. I mean, obviously he was obsessive and taking Sarah hostage. The thing with his ex-girlfriend, Maddie, the inconsistency in his story, which is established at the end, I couldn't tell if when the issue was starting to be written, that was the intent with him. I honestly thought they were going to have her die of a drug overdose at the party. Like, there's this running thing with, he doesn't want to talk about her. It's like, okay, why doesn't he want to talk about her? And then he says, she, she died. I took her to the party. It's my fault. And then it it is kind of interesting that at the end he's like, well, she's dead to me because we went to the party and she went home with somebody else. And everyone's always abandoned me my whole life. I really get that we're supposed to feel sorry for Mark, kind of. And I don't. I think he's just a shitty dude. I read it almost like he could have been talking about himself in the third person, like he had a split personality. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. That like... Like he actually did kill her? Oh! (laughs) But he... That was, like, his other personality. Really? Because the language is so weird at the end when he describes this party and then, like, describing this other person. Well, I don't think the other person killed her. I don't think he's saying that at all at any point. He's saying that she's dead to him because she left him. Mm. In the same way that his parents are dead to him because they gave him up for adoption, even though they didn't give his other brother and sister up for adoption. Maybe he was always a jerk. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I know stuff like that does happen. I know my grandparents, actually, my my grandfather, at one point when he was growing up, his parents did have to temporarily give up one of his siblings for adoption. And then they got them back later, but it was the issues of what they could afford. Dang. I mean, so I know stuff like that does happen, and that's got to be tough for the kids, especially if, you know, it's like, well, which one? Mm -hmm. Mm, Mark, she is dead. She's dead to me. I took her to that party. I took her, not him, but she left me right in the middle of the party. She left me for him, damn it, for him. She left me like everyone's left me, like my parents left me, like Sarah left me. They're all dead. God, they're all dead. Okay, I can see where you think maybe that is a split personality thing and he killed them. He's drawn totally like... I mean, he is he is like having Namor levels of flop sweats. Mm-hmm. Like... It is like a Salbucema level of instantaneous, total drenched in sweat. But I think you're, it's more likely. Let's go with Occam's razor here and say it's metaphorically they're all dead to him. Yeah, just like Maddie. Just like at the party. Huh? I thought she was dead. Yeah, I feel like we're supposed to feel sorry for him and I just don't. I feel like this comic book is shittily relevant to things that are happening today in terms of a combination of entitlement and fragile male egos plus rejection equals a fucking body count. And it's shitty how much the narrative sometimes seems to be, how do we solve this problem? And the part that they focus on is the rejection part, rather than the fragile male egos and the entitlement part which seems like that's maybe the part that we should work on fixing. Mm. It's a weird climate to be reading this comic book in. Yeah. Yeah. 
let's talk about something more fun. Cheers. In this issue, the Teen Titans go up against perhaps their most deadly enemy, horseplay. <laughs> I this there is this weird dynamic of like complete and utter ineptitude versus just complete like Deus ex machina godlike ability to solve any problem. Yeah. And they're very contradictory. Raven is almost killed by being knocked off a set of stairs because Cyborg threw Beast Boy and Snake format her and knocked <laughs> yeah. her over. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Like, oh shit. Yeah. They're superheroes, but like their actions still have consequences in terms of physics. Mm-hmm. Like, if she falls off a staircase and doesn't teleport, then she would die. That is a very large staircase. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the issue, Cyborg gets shot in the shoulder mm-hmm. and part of his fleshy part by Mark who is a marksman, and again, it almost kills him. These are things that are like kind of mundane problems, and I think having mundane dangers feel real really heightens the tension and raises the stakes of the more fantastic action elements in the story. It's like, oh shit, yeah, these are people. Like, it's not just he busts through the wall and he's fine. When he does that, that is... A real action that could potentially have a consequence. And I I thought that was a really fun way to do that in the beginning. And also with the him getting shot by a bullet, just regular old gun bullet, like, yeah, he could have died from that. Mm -hmm. It makes you realize the extent that to which they are cheating death constantly in their adventures and are really brave for doing some of the shit that they do. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, but why didn't Beast Boy turn into something that could fly other than a bird that wasn't strong enough to keep Raven from falling down the stairs? Yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> I I totally agree because he's like, I can't support her weight in this form. He's like, yeah, I want you to look at the sentence you just said, the in this form, why didn't you just change to a bigger form? Also, before he beans her off the stairs, he says to himself, ah, snakes can't fly. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, no shit, turn into something that can fly and don't. Knock your friend off the stairs. Yeah, I mean, not, not, in a perfect world, that would be a way to go about that. <laughs> yeah, That's Beast Boy does his best in this issue. He does better in this issue than in many others, despite that that one accident. Yeah, in the past few issues, he's been pretty likable, I think. He's been way less, like, handsy with his teammates. That's nice. Mm-hmm. He does a bad job. I mean... That, that's a fact. Like, when he turns into that spider and tries to use regular spider webs to yank a gun out of a dude's hands, not great. No, that was not well conceived. And then he turns into a monkey that looks like Ed Asner. And, <laughs> and somehow in chimpanzee form is overpowered by Mark, which is insane. Chimpanzees are so strong. Like five times stronger than a man or a woman. Very good, Corey. You're so woke. <laughs> I'm trying my best. <laughs> Aren't chimps supposed to be like five times stronger than a person? Yeah, man. Chimpanzees are like crazy strong. They can literally rip dude's arms off. I was just going to say, I heard they could rip a dude's arm off. Yeah, and probably like just like wail on him with it. Oh, that's got to be insult to injury, man. Brutal. Oof. Yeah, so that doesn't make any damn sense. No. Mark's not that strong. No, He's Mark like... Wright is not that strong. Mark Wright. More like Mark Wrong. Burn! Oh, shit. Yeah. Did I just have a stroke? Because I smell toast Mm -hmm. from Mark getting burnt. Yeah, that was a good burn. Yeah. We see our old buddy Bethany Snow in this issue. He's probably up to no good. I don't trust her. I did notice that her TV station has an appropriate name. Oh, it was funny. What was it? It's W-U-B-S. Uh, whoops. Yeah, I read it as Wubs first, but then I was also like, if you have a cable news network, you should probably keep BS out of it. Probably so. Yeah. I bet Bethany Snow thinks it's named after her. BS. Yeah. Mm. It's not. That's Mm. not how radio, that's not how news stations work, man. How do they work? Nobody knows for sure, but they do know that it's not that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have too much to say about her. She seems like she's kind of a jerk. I, I did notice that the cop just like started handing out full names and probably addresses like they were Halloween candy to her. Cyborg's like, I don't want to talk about this. And the cop's like, well, the gunman's name is Mark Wright, and he's holding Sarah Sims hostage. And I don't think you should necessarily be telling the press that. 
it would suck so much for Sarah's family to find out about it. And it did suck for Sarah's students to find out about that because we see that they're watching TV and are just like, Cyborg's going to kick his butt. Mm -hmm. That's not a good way to go about that. Yeah, the same observation. Bad job, cop. Yeah, bad job, cop. We did see there's a different cop in this who I think we will get to later. I know we will get to later in the sartorial section, but I was confused by him. He doesn't get a name. We hear earlier that Captain Hall is going to chew out that other cop who Mark stole the pistol from. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if that was supposed to be Captain Hall, but because it wasn't Perez drawing the issue, he didn't know that Captain Hall had previously been drawn as a black man. And so then they just had to get rid of the references to this character's name because he gets a lot of screen time for somebody who doesn't get a name or even a title. I ended up calling him Lieutenant in my notes, but I'm just making that up because we don't get what his rank is. I thought he was a detective because of his hat. Oh, a detective or a reporter. But we know he's a cop. Oh, yeah, good point. So. But from the outfit. He does look kind of like Kolchak the Night Stalker. That rings a bell. It was a 70s program about like an investigative reporter who ends up fighting werewolves and shit, but he's kind of an old drunk dude. That sounds kind of awesome. I want to like the show. I kind of like the show. It sounds better than it is. Maybe time for a reboot. It might be. And it might be just time for me to for, for a rewatch. Maybe I've grown since I watched Kolchak the Night Stalker. Either way, that's a hell of a good name. It is a heck of a name. Yep. So we talked about Beast Boy a little bit. Mm-hmm. It seems to me the way his transformations are illustrated are a little different than normal. In that when he turns into a snake... It looks like the snake pops out of his head. Yeah. And when he turns into a spider... It looks like he had previously eaten a bunch of spicy spiders, and now he is pooping a flaming spider. Right out of his butt. Yeah. Maybe that is how his transformations work. We just never really got the that view before. <laughs> yeah, and it's maybe Perez is more of a prude and was censoring that information from us. I'm okay with that. I don't need to see spiders... Coming oh, man, I don't need fruition. to see flaming spiders shooting out of a butthole. <laughs> Nobody does. Nobody needs Well, it. I bet somebody does. Somebody might I'm want sure, to see Well, it. I, I don't know, man. I, nobody I'm needs not to. trying to yuck anybody's yum. Maybe that's what they need. Uh, it wants different than needs. That's true. Maybe some people need that, Corey. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lovers of angry spider poops, direct your angry fan mail to <laughs> Corey Whitney at spiderpoophater.edu. It's educational, and, and right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs clearly <laughs> states that there's no spider poop anywhere in the scene, man. Well, Maslow lived a long time ago. Well before certain subreddit threads. <laughs> Shoot, he would have been really surprised by the whole oh, dragons boy. and cars thing. I wonder if when he got home at night, Maslov did have like a list that was like just in a secret compartment of his journal that was labeled Maslow's Hierarchy of Wants. Just, yeah. And it was just all spider shit. <laughs> or shit spiders. Which do you think that counts as? I don't know, man. You brought it up. I'm sorry. Don't be. Okay. This is how we learn. Talking about what what gave it away that it wasn't um, necessarily Perez as the illustrator. Mm -hmm. And you said you got to about page 14. Was there a particular... Well, there were two things on page 14. There was the explicit reference to Marvin Keith. Oh, right. That was what definitely did it for me. But also the fact that, as I already mentioned, the chimpanzee looks a lot like Ed Asner. And that is not a way that Perez generally draws a chimpanzee. Man knows his apes. He does. No, I meant you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Ah, uh, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Yes. Very well. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. What do you feel like discussing first? Let's discuss clothes. Let's talk about fashion. Okay, sartorially speaking, what instances of fashion in this issue do you feel are worthy of note? There was a few good ones. There really were. I like the outfits that Sarah Sims and also Mark, the jerk, right, were wearing mm -hmm. um, at the beginning. 
Yeah, Sarah's got a pink turtleneck with white jeans and pink shoes that match her turtleneck sweater. Mm -hmm. It is a well-put-together look. Yep. And Mark, as I mentioned earlier, mostly due to his hair and sort of the way his face is drawn, mm -hmm. reminded me of a Han Solo-type uh, character. Really needed a vest to complete the look, but he had a cool blue jacket. Yes, I mean, as he has become a less likable character than when he was first introduced, he has improved much in terms of his fashion. Famously, when we first saw him, he was wearing a basketball jersey over a turtleneck sweater that both shirts were tucked into his slacks. Man, did that look dumb. It was the worst look I've ever seen. That is saying something. Yes. There are looks. There are looks, and that was one of them. Bad. It was the bad kind, yes. I think <laughs> that was maybe foreshadowing that, like, this guy is up to no good. Nobody needs to tuck in that jersey. No. And nobody needs to wear a basketball jersey over a goddamn turtleneck sweater. It was also, like, I believe a three-quarter length sleeve turtleneck sweater. It was so confusing. It made me angry. It makes me angry just thinking about it. Let, let's move on. Okay. One outfit that I enjoyed was one of the kids who was watching the hostage situation develop on TV. We see that Sarah Sim's students are watching events unfold, and one of them is a little kid who is wearing a orange shirt that has little checkers all over it. It's, it's more like it's an orange shirt that just has a, like, a huge tic-tac-toe grid all over it, and then he is wearing green pants, which made me wonder if he was cosplaying as Aquaman. Oh. I think he might have been, and I think that's adorable, and I like to believe that probably a lot of kids in the DC universe like to dress like Aquaman. Because it's a good look. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Aquaman-looking dude. Pretty cool, pretty cool. And then we already did touch on a little bit the perhaps Lieutenant, perhaps misdrawn Captain Hall, uh, who is wearing a rumpled tan suit with the necktie undone like he's drunk at a wedding, and a fedora with a brown and blue striped band on it. It reminds me of the fedora that was worn by Conan O'Brien's band member, La Bamba, is what he kind of looks like. But we also see that this, this dude has a very pronounced five o'clock shadow. And here's a little tip if you have problems with five o'clock shadow. If you sleep until noon, that five o'clock shadow doesn't really come in until like 11 or midnight. Interesting. Yeah, it's a little life hack for you. Oh, okay. Good to know. Any other outfits you want to talk about? Yeah, I did have one other one, which I believe was on page 10. And whoa, does it look different in this comic than it does in the print that I have. But this one is actually even more interesting. I called it Fashion Crowd. It's a group of people being menaced by, by Mark. Mm-hmm. We've all got these very 80s looking suits on. There's a guy with a kind of a pinkish magenta sport jacket and a black turtleneck. And the gentleman standing in the front, due to, I'm assuming, a coloration issue, has a tan suit with two pink arms. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I looked at it as that he was wearing tan pants and a tan vest and then is wearing a collared shirt under it that has pink sleeves but a white torso. It's a very brave look. Well done, sir. He's a very brave man. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? <laughs> I had two. It was a bit of a toss-up. I think my favorite one was the noise that it makes when you hit a Beast Boy ape in the face with the butt of a rifle. Oh, boy. And that's just another a good old cram. Yep, with cram a, with a K. And a bunch of M's. Yep. Yeah. Uh, was the other one the noise that it makes when you drop a several-ton computer and it almost smashes into Beast Boy? No, that was a good noise, though. That was a kathoom! Mm -hmm. wow. And that was my favorite. That was pretty good. Thank you. No, my follow-up was uh, the noise when you dust off your hands. It makes clap, clap. That's true. Who dusts off their hands? The cyborg right after he drops the hard drive <laughs> on Beast Boy. <laughs> wow. That was a really fun scene. That was I, fun. I really did enjoy that. Yeah, good stuff. Like, why would you dress, not dress up, why would you transform into an elephant if you have to sweep a room? Well, they've got a trunk. It's probably faster. <laughs> what animal do you think would be best at sweeping a room? Uh... Now, bear in mind, he's just got the one broom. Yeah. Like, if know. you had eight brooms, obviously you're going to go octopus. Probably I... just six brooms. You still need two to stand on. It needs a way to get around. Yeah, no, I did. A human form seems 
to to work fine. I guess, but it was a pretty big broom. That's true, I guess. He, <laughs> otherwise, like, if he hadn't been an elephant, the broom would have seemed really big. Yeah. Hmm. He would have been really cute holding it. Though. Maybe it was just a giant broom. Yeah. That was why he had yeah, to do it. Yeah, he's like, well, okay. I bet they just keep that there. I bet that's his way of making sure that he always gets that task on the chore wheel. They call it the elephant broom? Mm-hmm. Mm. He probably just like, oh, man, I hate doing the dishes. I'm going to make sure we got an elephant-sized broom. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Superman, the key to his Fortress of Solitude is just a really big key. Mm. That only he can lift. Mm. And he just leaves it lying out. Because why bother hiding this? I'm the only one who could pick it up. Same with the broom. Yeah, it's the same deal with Beast Boy and his broom. That's his way of cheating the chore wheel. All right. Yeah. A lot of life hacks in this episode. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Here to help. We did get somebody wrote me on Twitter and said that they got a question right on a test because of our what is Aqualad probably up to. So between that and the life hacks that we're doing, I think we do count as educational programming. We could probably start getting some grants. I was going to call it a discount, but a grant is the right word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What would we get discounts on? I don't know. You got to apply for them. Oh, boy. Corey, did you have a timestamp in this issue? Yes, I had two. There were several. What two did you want to discuss? Well, the first one is the one that you suggested I use and then tried to retract, and I refused to let you retract it. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. And that is referring to the 9,000 ton, 18,000 pounds, I guess that would be, of computing equipment, which Cyborg has... Holding aloft will be... Nine tons, not 9,000 tons. Nine tons. Yeah. Okay, that's good. (laughs) 18,000 pounds. 18,000 pounds. Still, pretty heavy. Big computer. Yeah. Referred to by Cyborg is a hard disk drive, which I know 83 was a long time ago, but I suspect they weren't that big back then because they're not that big. This may be another elephant broom situation. Cyborg doesn't want anybody else using his computer. Ah. So he specifically went out of his way to make a nine-ton computer. And then maybe he keeps the passwords under the computer so that he has to pick it up to look at it. Okay. Real Fortress of Solitude situation. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that was one. Okay. <laughs> what was the other? And I don't know why that was a timestamp other than that just computers Computers were, were being bigger. that size. Yeah. They used to be really big. Yeah. Now they're really small. But also, I think it's funny because I think that is Wolfman, like, he heard somebody say hard drive once and he's like, oh yeah, that's a computer thing. Yeah. I'll just call this nine ton device a hard drive. Yeah. So there's that. Okay. But the main one that I wanted to use for a timestamp was when Cyborg and Beast Boy are engaged in their horseplay. Uh, Beast Boy is in the form of a snake and he starts to say, call me Monty Python before he gets like strangled and thrown at um, yeah. Raven. Yeah, I always think of Monty Python as being a earlier reference from that. The TV show was on from 69 to 74, but this is the year that The Meaning of Life came out. And that was, was the 83. That was so. the big one. Well, for for people of my generation, that seems to be like the movie that had a big impact on. Okay, I think it was probably financially one of their least successful movies. I know both The Holy Grail and The Life of Brian, I think, were more successful films, but... Yeah. I think it was just like my, my sample that was size new... was like it was like you know four kids that I gotcha. hung out with. <laughs> we all thought the movie was awesome. It is weird, like how many things growing up you thought. Well, everybody says this, and then as you get older, you're like, oh, and it was a regional thing. And then as you get older than that, you realize, oh, I think that was just us. <laughs> yeah. When I was in high school, we used to call the the last bit of backwash in a forty ounce. You know how it's like nasty. Mm-hmm. We would call that the Larry. And I thought, oh, that's a New Hampshire thing. And I was like, no, I think that was just a three of my friends thing. (laughs) Was one of them named Larry? No. I am totally making this up, but in my mind it was like, oh, I look kind of like, it's all foamy and stuff. I look kind of like Larry Bird's hair. (laughs) I don't know if that was the origin of it. Wow. And I think when I was like in college, I I was like, oh, you don't drink that. That's just the Larry at this point. And they were like, wait, wait, the what? And I was like, oh, it must be a New England thing. I'm like, no, I'm from New England. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's probably just a New Hampshire thing. And then I thought that for many years. And then, uh, yeah, I think that was like maybe two people called it that. So, much like Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. <laughs> right. The Larry. <laughs> Indeed. My timestamp was when Beast Boy changes from a spider into Ed Asner and jumps from the ceiling. 
Sarah recognizes him, you know, him being a giant green animal, and says, Gar? And he says, no, I'm a reject from Tales of the Green Monkey. That is a reference to a TV show that debuted in 1982 called Tales of the Gold Monkey, which I was unfamiliar with, but reading the synopsis of the TV show, it sounded incredibly familiar, and it was about a cargo pilot in 1939 who was friends with a bar owner named Louie and his adventures and there was kind of like a will they won't they thing with this lady who was uh, a spy but also a businesswoman who I think sang in a nightclub but as I was reading the details of it it was very heavily inspired by Indiana Jones as I was reading it I was like wait a minute this is the plot to Tailspin so the cartoon the 90s cartoon Tailspin I've always been fascinated by that show. I haven't watched it since it was on, but like recalling events of it, it sounds like a fever dream that I made up where it's like, okay, it's the characters from the Jungle Book, but they are in a World War II setting fighting sky pirates. Mm. And um, yeah. And trying to, to, like, piece the details of it together. It really seems like they just lifted the plot from this TV show, Tales of the Gold Monkey. Which now I really want to watch. And also, I really want to watch Tailspin. Well, sir, you have a big to-do list in front of you. Apparently. Oh, boy. Just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was my timestamp. Very good. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? There was, as we said earlier, a whole lot of Mark. And mm-hmm. uh, due to that, I guess it's logical. One of the favorites is him. And this one is from page 10. Okay, let's take a look at page 10. And it's uh, the camera, as it were, is looking up at him. And it's his face uh, and his shaking fist. And there's an explosion of emotional energy coming off him. Drawn all jagged and orange and yellow. And uh, he just looks totally scary. But I thought it was very interesting the way that it was drawn. Mm, pretty good. My favorite is the opening page where it is Cyborg impatiently hoisting his nine-ton computer over his head while he taps one foot. And he's lifting it with one hand as he complains about how heavy it is. Mm-hmm. Which is like, well, then use your other fucking hand, dude. And it is Gar using his elephant broom to sweep under the computer. And it's just a really cute scene. I really enjoyed that. Other ones that I enjoyed were the... Uh, Ed Asner chimpanzee getting a rifle butt to the face. Mm-hmm. That was certainly interesting. It definitely made an impact on me. And I also like when Beast Boy turns into a frog and you just see the frog flying through the sky out of the window. Mm. I thought that was pretty fun. Pretty good. Yeah. Again, really, really good artwork in this issue. And Keith Pollard did a great job. He's a very talented artist, which you really have to be to step relatively seamlessly into the midst of a George Perez run. Mm -hmm. We do get a note. The reason why George Perez is off on this issue is he's doing a ton of other work right then. The New Teen Titans annual, which we just covered, hadn't come out, was being created concurrently with this issue. Mm. And he was also working on a Justice League Avengers crossover issue, which didn't end up getting published for another like 12 years after this. Hmm. It got caught up in some legal bullshit. And also working on the aforementioned in this series, the uh, Sword Quest video game comic books. Ah, So Perez was a very busy man right then, and he just needed to take a couple issues off. He's going to be back in issue 37, so the next issue, I haven't checked who the creative team is, but uh, it will not be Perez again. Interesting. So, that's what's going on with him. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Corey, I have a suggestion. Yeah? What's your suggestion? I suggest that we take this party to the Bozo! Okay. Corey, what instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to discuss? Well, there are some good insults in here. There really are. But there there is also a natural bozo. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there is a natural double bozo, in fact, that could also be a timestamp. There is, as Beast Boy leaps from the ceiling in ape form, 
after making his Tales of the Green Monkey reference, mm-hmm. he says, Bedtime for Bozo, right, Bozo? Mm-hmm. Double, of, double Bozo? Double Bozo. And of course, that is a reference to the, I believe, 1950s, possibly 40s, Ronald Reagan film, Bedtime for Bonzo, in which he co-starred with a chimpanzee. Which was often misquoted uh, as I was growing up. I remember it was referenced very often because Reagan was president at the time. But uh, it was often misquoted as Bozo, but it was Bonzo was the name of the... I remember my dad saying often bedtime for Bonzo, referring to Reagan as the Bonzo in that situation. Mm -hmm. Like he, he thought it was time for Reagan to go to bed. Yeah, and stop being president. Yeah, like as a threat, like bedtime for Bonzo. I think so. I can see Jim saying that. Mm-hmm. There there was a lot of really fun wordplay going on, mostly between Cyborg and Beast Boy. At one point, Beast Boy says Cyborg's probably off oil in his head. Mm-hmm. I think guacamole brains gets used on Beast Boy. Compost breath? Um, mulch breath. Mulch breath. Which was confusing because that's not something I think of specifically being a green thing. So maybe just independent of his being green, Beast Boy likes to eat mulch? Gross. Yeah, well, he's a weird dude. But yeah, there's a salad head. At one point, Beast Boy says, it's come down to beauty versus the metal yakoid. I enjoy that. Zing. Yeah, that's a real Mad Magazine zing. Mm -hmm. Yak. Mm -hmm. Also, black. Yep, both. Both. Okay, I sense there might be some dissension about this. Corey, in this issue, who was the Aqualad? Who was the best Teen Titan? I thought Cyborg did the best job, and he gets my nod. Okay, I did not like Cyborg's depiction in this, uh, for reasons we previously discussed. I thought he was being somewhat narcissistic and trying to reframe Sarah's issues as being about him and make himself the focus of someone else's story and not really taking her situation into concern. So I did not have Cyborg. I had Beast Boy because I thought he did his best. He said Bozo. He didn't try to make this about him. And the other option would have been Raven. And while Raven does a very good job in this issue, and I did have her as a potential Aqualad, she does use her powers kind of a lot after saying that if she were to use her powers, it could let Trigon loose. So Beast Boy didn't do anything that might trigger a planetary Armageddon. Mm-hmm. I understand Raven wants to help her friends, and I understand there's a certain amount of self-sacrifice in terms of her powers can hurt herself, but they could also do something that could potentially destroy the universe. So it's a tough decision, I get that, but maybe don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So that's where we're at. All right, we'll agree to disagree. Hmm... Agreed. Thank you. Conversely, who did you have as your speedy, the worst Teen Titan? (sighs) So we've got three to work with. Everybody did a pretty good job. If I absolutely had to pick somebody in the issue... And you do. I would pick Raven because of the inconsistency that you mentioned. I didn't like that she was unwilling to use her powers to save her own life, Mm -hmm. but was willing to use them to make it so that Cyborg's shoulder didn't hurt so bad. That seemed... yeah like wildly inconsistent and that would be the only reason i would pick her but other than that she did a great job so i don't want to pick her so okay robin was a real jerk in the last few issues and so i'm picking robin <laughs> you figure wherever he is he's probably off being a jerk somewhere probably okay i suppose that's fair um <laughs> i really don't like how we treat starfire i know you don't i once again for reasons we discussed i picked i picked cyborg the main thing that it came down to is the thank God that he says when he finds out that Sarah and Mark didn't use to date. Well, she is being held at gunpoint. That just, I think, is indicative of his attitude in this whole situation. I didn't like it. So I went with Cyborg. It's a flaw. He he has that flaw. But yeah. I'm sticking with Robin. Okay. Well, Corey, I have but one important question that I must ask of you. Hmm? Wapoot! Oh, jeez. Corey. Yep. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, October, Wapoot! What was Aqualad probably up to? Mm. So, as we've discussed before, he is generally a pretty peaceful guy. Sure. 
you know, willing to do what needs to be done in the name of, you know, justice and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Really having a lot of trouble with the current political climate in the 80s. And Understandable. Yeah. Especially uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy, as it has to do with South and Central America and kind mm -hmm. of meddling in the in the politics and the, in the governance of, of those countries. And this is the time in which the u.s has opted to invade granada mm -hmm. has about one two thousandth the population of the u.s yep militarily successful but shocking shocking and uh he's he's not feeling great about it and so he's bummed out and turns as he often does in times of trouble to to music to soothe his well, it has power soul. to soothe the savage breast that it does that is the actual quote i we've discussed it before okay. and i'm not taking the bait i'm just saying <laughs> so he he goes to his local record store and, and he sees this uh, you know he loved the beatles sure great right and um paul mccartney a little bit on the fence but you know he's he's pretty popular say, ram's a pretty good album pretty popular at this at this stage too mm -hmm. and, and his his record um pipes of peace has just dropped mm -hmm. and, and so uncle no oh, that sounds pretty good i like peace and you know buys it and goes home and listens to it and it is actually a pretty lousy song <laughs> He just bums him out now. He's like, damn it, now I'm out 10 bucks. And Yeah. Oof, and, and those are 1983 $10. Mm -hmm. So that was that. He did get Say, Say, Say on that record, though. The, yeah, that's a good the song. duet with uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. So it Pretty wasn't good. a total loss, but mostly. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair. Mm. I think, didn't we have him previously uh, helping co-write the song, The Doggone Girl Is Mine? I wouldn't put it past him. That seems like the sort of thing he would have done. Hmm. Coming up with hip young slang, like, doggone girl is mine. Yeah, really, really, really with it. Yeah, that's, that's Aqualad. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps to cheer himself up, Aqualad was hanging out with the rest of the original Teen Titans squad. You may have been wondering where they were this issue. Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, Donna, and Wally were hanging out with their buddy Garth, Aqualad, and they have a tradition that uh, every Halloween they, uh, they try to see a movie that they'll find scary together real mm -hmm. spook them up mm -hmm. so a few years ago they had gone and seen jaws and aqualad just laughed his ass off throughout that movie because he's not afraid of sharks mm -hmm. no matter how big that shark is he's just like eh, i'd just telepathically tell him to shut up and then i'd punch him in his shark face mm -hmm. and the rest of the titans were a little bit annoyed with that and then it got brought up again this summer when they went and saw jaws 3d which granted not a good movie, but is still pretty scary if you're afraid of sharks. Sure. Because it's got sharks in it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the one where they go into the swimming pool. Oh. You know, sharks in a swimming pool. Mm -mm. Pretty scary. No thanks. Unless you're Aqualad. So once again, he was just like, sharks, whatever. Those lamos. Me and Namor both know that they are all cowards. Bunch of cowards. Once again, not my opinion. Aqualad's opinion. Sharks, I think you're great. Space sharks, when you invade, I'll be your point man. But the rest of the Titans are a little bit annoyed, in this case somewhat understandably, with uh, Aqualad. So this Halloween, they decide to see a movie that is specifically designed to scare the pants off of Aqualad. Mm. The right stuff. <laughs> Not a drop of water in sight. No, sir. It reminds, it reminds Aqualad of his terrifying adventures back in, I believe it was the original Teen Titans series number 12? Where they go into space mm. unassisted. And uh, yeah, and, and really, he, he was scared, so scared throughout the film. And I think it taught him a little bit of a little something, a little little bit of humility, which generally isn't a lesson he needs. But in this instance, it kind of was. Mm. So yeah, uh, he was watching a spooky astronaut movie that was not spooky to the other Titans, but was spooky to him as his payback for laughing at Jaws. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. What a busy month. Indeed. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real treat for me to talk to you. With you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will be back next week with another issue of The Defenders, which I am very much looking forward to. Me too. We get to see what the headmen are up to. This is the first real cliffhanger we've had in a while where I'm just like, what's going to happen next? Mm. And I'm really excited about it. It's kind of fun. Where is that brain? Where could it be? In a paper bag. Mm, you never know. And we will be back in 
two weeks with the new Teen Titans number 36. And in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on your podcatcher of choice, be it Apple Music or iTunes or whatever it calls itself these days. You can uh, leave us a review there if it's a good one. If it's a bad review, I'm afraid that technology won't work. So don't, don't waste your time trying to fill one of those out because it just wouldn't go through anyway. Um, yeah, it really only seems to accept five-star reviews. I, I don't know why. It's weird. Yeah, but so just, you know, don't waste time trying to do a different kind. As you know, that's uh, another life hack for you. You're welcome. Chock full of life hacks. That's me. And you can follow us on Twitter and we're on Facebook and uh, Tumblr. Tumblr. And Lisa's running an Instagram page, I understand. Sometimes there's some things there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look around for us and uh, don't forget to look inward because we're also in your heart. Taking up the space where your blood belongs. Sorry. Oh. It's okay. They're all mammals. They've got large four-chambered hearts. Plenty of space to kick out, spread our legs out, relax. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> See you later, guys. See you later, bye.